This episode of PodSAM is supported by Mountain Guard. All that we've learned about individual resilience scales up to the organizational level. And a lot of the ideas and uh, strategies and approaches we use to develop our own individual resilience apply to the team and organizational level as well. You have tuned into PodSAM, the podcast channel of SAM Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. It's the fifth year of SAM's leadership development program, the Summit Series, where we have gathered a group of current and emerging industry leaders for four facilitated discussions on the industry's pressing issues. Over the course of the winter and spring, we've been sharing those conversations here on PodSAM and in the pages of SAM Magazine. Today's episode is on reinventing resilience and is part two of a two-part discussion. Check out the previous episode of PodSAM, Reinventing Resilience, part one. Today, we feature four mentors on this episode. Dee Byrne, President and COO of Palisades Tahoe, California. Dan Fuller, President and General Manager of Bristol Mountain, New York. Kelly Pollock, President of the National Skiaries Association. And Melissa Roberts, General Manager and CFO of Berkshire East, Massachusetts. We are also pleased to welcome back Paul Tolner, Principal of Daggerwing Group as our facilitator. The Summit Series is brought to you through the support of our longtime sponsor, Mountain Guard. Tim Barnhorst and his team have been tremendous supporters of education and leadership development in our industry. We'll start the conversation here with SAM publisher, Olivia Rowan. All right, so we're gonna get started here. Um, Thrilled to have Paul Talner um, back again as our facilitator for part two. And Paul is a principal at Daggerwing Group, which is a top 10 management, um, a change management consultancy company. He's also the founder of High Peaks Group. And Paul has played a key role in the initial development of the Summit Series program five years ago and has written many articles for us in both of our magazines. Um, And for more than 25 years, he's been an organizational development expert, a strategic advisor, an executive coach and facilitator, um, and most recently an author. The mentors and mentees were provided with excerpts from Paul's book, Reinventing Resilience, How Organizations Move Beyond Setbacks to Grow Through Challenges, and it is referenced throughout the conversation. Last week was the organization, it was a personal resilience and resilience in ourselves, and this week we're scaling it up to organizational resilience. Paul, we're going to hand it over to you and have you help us move from personal to organizational resilience. Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh I'm excited to be back. Thanks for having me. So when, uh, so I'll give you a little bit of, just to refresh your memory a little bit, let me just kind of remind you about the organizational resilience model that I put together uh, in my book, Reinventing Resilience, this idea that resilient or resilient people uh, have a sense of uh, realism. They understand the situation around them and they kind of look at it very clearly and, and objectively, but they also have a strong belief in their ability to get through things when times are tough. And when those things come together, that creates the courage and confidence to grow through challenges. Uh, on the outside of the model, there are all the little attributes and, and uh, ways to uh, the the effects or the results of courage and confidence, right? The ability to do all of these things that are on the kind of perimeter of the model. But 
one thing we didn't talk about last time is that if you work on those four quadrants on the outside of the model, it works the other way too. So if you do, for instance, learn to develop uh, and accept, understand and accept the situation for what it truly is, you then build your aware, your staunch realism and, and awareness. So it's sort of like the self-licking ice cream cone as a friend of mine likes to call it, uh, or a virtuous cycle or, or, you know, an inside out model outside in as well. So um, very applicable as you're trying to figure out how to approach your developing your own individual resilience as well as if you know as well as to strengthen the resilience you already have and also we talked a little bit about the qualities of resilient people i won't go over them again but you, i just want to remind you of this particular set of qualities because what i wanted to do is take these and apply them to what what how those might show up in an organization or on a team uh, because I get a lot of questions about what's the difference between individual resilience and organizational resilience, obviously, and the kind of main idea of my book is that all that we've learned about individual resilience scales up to the organizational level and a lot of the ideas and uh, strategies and approaches we use mm -hmm. to develop our own individual resilience apply to the team and organizational level as well. So. That's what we're going to talk about now, these qualities as they relate to organizations. So one thing we know for sure that resilient people believe in their own ability, right? They've got a lot of self-efficacy. They're, they're confident in the fact that they can get through difficult things. So how might that show up in an organization? So we might have these people having each other's backs and having developing a lot of confidence uh, that the work will get done. So a lot of folks are, uh, you know, develop, I think we talked a little bit about values last week as well, but having each other's backs is one way that uh, we can, that you can build self-belief and self-efficacy on a team and in an organization. Uh, many other ways too, these are just some examples. As far as staunch realism goes, the, rea the ability to see reality really clearly. Um, when you're on a team where people are very accurate and detailed about what they're seeing and the conditions that could impact a project, that's a sign that you're on a pretty resilient team and that, or part of a resilient organization. Um, the opposite, of course, is when you have a situation where people are um, kind of blowing smoke <laughs> and it's not really an accurate picture at all, or they're trying to downplay the severity of a, of a situation or maybe just hide some of the details uh, because they're worried or nervous to share them all because they don't know what the repercussions might be. So a resilient team is one that actually is very accurate and very detailed about the conditions that affect a project. Similarly, under a team, you know, a resilient person can understand their own fears and triggers, right? They know themselves well enough to know what sets them off. But on a team, what might that look like? Well, it, it's the it, this is all about the idea of what you might have heard about psychological safety right so people notice and speak up when the team is stuck when it's spinning its wheels or when it's avoiding conflict so um a lot of people notice these things and don't speak up because they don't feel like they can or they don't feel like it's you know they're they're not willing to uh take a take a chance to to use their voice to talk about what's wrong because they don't know what's going to happen but a resilient team is full, you know, is, has developed enough um, 
psychological safety among the group that they're willing to take a little bit of a risk and and uh, say the things out loud that a lot of people have in their minds. Um, so speaking up is a very big and strong positive sign of a resilient team, resilient organization. Similarly, accepting the situation uh, we talked a little bit about as as a great quality of resilient people, right? They have this ability to really um, not only recognize it, the situation, even if it's difficult, but accept that it that it is the way it is, even if it's really challenging or unpleasant. How that shows up on a team is that people have candid conversations about the challenges, right? They sort of bring things to the surface and they talk about the 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 situation as it truly is and from a perspective of this is just the truth that we're all living right now this is just the way we have the thing we have to be dealing with it's not we're not talking about a the next problem or the last problem or some problem we wish we had we're talking about the one right now <laughs> that we're in um, and and doing so very candidly um resilient people thoughtfully select the way forward. And that's this is the possibility section of the model. Uh, they understand that it's not always the best idea to just sort of brainstorm 5 million things, none of which are practical, but really sort of isolating the few really tangible, concrete things that make sense to, to consider when moving forward, even if those things are steep uphill climbs. So on a team or in an organization, that shows up as a strong convergence around ideas that are both doable and difficult. Um, I mean, it's not that teams are looking for difficult work to do, but they recognize that part of work is doing work <laughs> and work is inherently challenging. So they they are, um, I, don't, I don't wanna say resigned, but they're uh, comfortable with the idea that what, however they're gonna go forward they're going to go forward in a way that requires some effort, but it's also possible. It's doable, uh, and they and they all agree that that's kind of the the on the on the way forward. And they talk about it, and then lastly, um, we know that resilient people have the great ability to access those hidden resources that they have. And for people, those are things like your friends and family or your professional network. It could be your skills and abilities that you have, um, maybe that are adjacent to your core skill set for your job, for instance. Uh, they're just maybe just skills and abilities you've acquired over time. Uh, but they could be things like your values, your attitudes, your work ethic. These are all things that are resources that that you have at your disposal that sometimes when you're stuck, we lose access to them or we lose contact with them or we forget that we have them. On teams, a resilient team really does tend to draw on the full range of the skills and qualities and support in and around the team. So usually that the way we notice that is teams will often start a project or start a meeting or start some big section of work with uh, a sit down where they're all like talking about what they're good at, what they like to do, what are their, what's your, what's on your professional development plan? What do you want to do? How do you want to grow? And what, what opportunities in this project or on this team are there that will help you get there. So in having that conversation, people are just talking about the resources that they have that might not otherwise show up or might not be obvious just by looking at someone. So they, you know, just by putting that in the conversation, you're increasing the chances that the full set of, of resources on a team will be used 
to get the job done. So that's a great sign a team is resilient. So why are we talking about all this on the terms of organizations? Um, one of the key things we're all, I don't know, uh, experiencing in the world of work as employers is that expectations that employees have of their employers is changing fundamentally. How many of you have experienced that or understand that, you know, workers of yesterday are a lot different than workers of today, right? What they want, what they expect, what they need, totally different than now than it has been in the past. So there is a big shift going on in organizations. This is one of many changes that your organization is facing right now the industry is facing right now so the need to be resilient is really really important because you know it's not just weather <laughs> you know it's not just you know tech challenges or infrastructure that's changing it's the whole mindset of the workforce that's changing as well so we need to be prepared for that inevitable inevitability or the fact that it's really here already and that it's not going to change anytime soon. There's no normal to go back to. We're, we're just going forward from here, right? So let me just talk a little bit about the big shift that is going on between those organizations that are remaining in that old paradigm and kind of refusing to accept this reality <laughs> and organizations that are resilient, that are kind of embracing this the the truth or the reality of of the workforce uh as it's changing so um there's a difference between older uh less resilient organizations not old as in chronologically old but old school old thinking prior thinking and then more contemporary thinking around how organizations can be more resilient so there is a, a you know workers are expecting organizations to move from a hierarchical model or perspective to a little bit more of a pluralistic model where everybody has a perspective everybody has an opinion everybody can contribute their perspective to problem solving for instance right so that's what workers are expecting um purpose-driven organizations every every i think if if your organization isn't thinking about its purpose in the world it probably you will probably get questions from prospective employees about what do you stand for? What are you all about? You know, we're seeing the rise of, you know, or, you know, recently the rise of B Corps and other organizations taking stands on political or other social issues, because this is why, because, because employees are really wanting to work for organizations that stand for something besides just making a buck. So being purpose-driven values-based, similar, uh, you know, instead of having one right way, there's there's values. Um, people aren't wanting to sort of join an organization where they have to drink the Kool-Aid and just sort of assimilate. They want to be themselves in an organization uh, and feel empowered to be themselves, but also, uh, you know, work within a system, not, not necessarily be defined by it. Um, democratization, everyone's a leader, right? Everybody has a perspective, an opportunity to decide, uh, an opportunity to innovate, add their voice to the conversation, make decisions. Um, people are looking for equitable organizations, stakeholder, you know, uh, you know, from uh, shareholders to stakeholders. I think that's a, uh, something that is kind of more well-known. And people want, people are expecting uh, organizations or resilient organizations to 
be a little bit more comfortable with complexity. There are they are more complex organizations because organizations are work, living in a more complex world with change happening all around them all the time. So the days of one one role, one job forever kind of thing kind of is going by the wayside and people are expecting, I think, and I think organizations are expecting people to have more skills and capacities to adapt to roles as they change, as the roles change and as the needs change of the organization too. So a lot's going on in the world of work. Um, and I think the more pliable and flexible and uh, your organization is and uh, the more resilient it becomes and the easier it will be for you to uh, attract and retain uh, really great talent. So that's that would be my uh, salvo out to you that we can talk a little bit about when it comes to um, organizational uh, organizational resilience. So let me throw throw it back to you, Olivia, with some questions for the mentors and mentees. You know, I thought we'd start off with a, a question, you know, for Dee and, and Melissa, um, and we'll move things around. But Dee, you know, what does your organization typically do when a big problem hits? How How do you guys wrap around that? Do you have you know, how do you approach that when a, when you're faced with a big problem? Unfortunately, we've practiced it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the challenges, um, if they're not economically driven, are driven by the weather. And so I could tell a lot of stories of how we've handled uh, catastrophic incidents, um, inbound avalanches, deaths on the mountain, uh, so on and so forth. Um, so in that, what we do is we have we have crisis operation plans that we practice. And so we're trying to build that skill set uh, so that when we need to rely on it, our people are enabled and capable. They don't freeze. Um, I loved the chapter, Paul, on fight, flight, and freeze and appease. So really try to um, build that skill set and that confidence prior to the incident. Um, specifically, this last year, uh, with all that we've been dealing with in the industry, uh, we formed teams of teams before the season started. And they were more, not senior level management, but mid-level mid supervisors and management uh, cross-functional groups. And we said, what are the, all the things that we're probably gonna deal with this year? And let's have action plans in place for uh, doing that when the time comes. And so for instance, to share a couple, we had an oh shit group. And the OSHIT group was working on uh, staffing augmentation and how we're going to sh uh, share labor. So uh, we had a number of tactics already in place uh, when, and we decided to prioritize, for instance, which operations would be shut down versus stay open. So we had all of that scripted, and sure enough, it happened. And again, then that enabled the team to, to move forward versus freeze. Um, we had another one that was focused on just HR toolkit, we called it. And so a number of incentives and different um, ways in which we would we would uh, support the team when the going really got tough. So, for instance, a holiday bonus. We didn't put it on our budget plan, but we built it and had it ready and decided to go ahead and, and execute it. Um, about the fourth day during the Christmas holidays, just to give our, our team some support. So we had a whole whole list of items like that uh, in the plan 
Some of them we we didn't have to uh, execute, and that was great. But but we did uh, lean on a lot of them, and they were effective. Um, typically, so we we plan um, extensively. We practice. We do tabletops, so on and so forth. We have fire drills. <laughs> we do it all. But um, inevitably, you'll have that circumstance where you've got something that you haven't planned for. Like we had a, a, a an entire mountain power outage one year that uh, was really crippling and we lost the main feed into our resort. So the whole valley was out plus our mountain. And um, so we had to go to um, um, lifty back uh, on a lot of our major lifts. And so it took a lot of resources that we didn't have in hand. And um, interesting that when you think about uh, relying on additional resources, you know, we got community members that we trusted. We called the fire department. You know, we, we gathered um, outside of the team to assist us in that process. Um, but it, prior to doing that, the, the most I recall, the most important thing was that the senior team huddled right away. We huddled and we hit pause, took a deep breath and said, OK, here's a circumstance. What do we know? And, and then work through that decision making process um, quite quickly as a result. But it really took, you know, the collective intelligence of the whole group. So those are some thoughts and ideas on that. And I'll pass the ball to Melissa. That sounds great. It sounds like you're drawing a lot on the courage and confidence combo that Paul says is important for scaling to the organizational level. M- Melissa, how about you? What what does your organization typically do when a big problem hits? Sure. Um, Dee, that was great. Um, really good input. Um, for us, I think the first thing um, that we try to do is kind of like what Dee said, is we hit pause. We want to act, not react. So we want to, um, well, the first thing we do is whoever's available, um, there's usually, we're a small team, let's be honest too. So we're there, we pull together and we look and we we go into problem solving mode. You know, what what is the problem? What's happening? All right. And then we look and we divide and conquer and say, okay, who can do this? Who can do that? Um, and, and really we empower and we delegate where we can so that we all, you know, do a quick huddle. Okay. That's what we got to do. Go. And we just move forward and, and, and get done what needs to get done. Um, but I, I really like what Dee said, and that's what we try to do, which is just pause quickly. You know, time may be of the essence and if it is, then it's quick. But if we do have some time, really think because your first reaction may not be the best action to take. So, um, you know, a, a quick pause and group think can really go a long ways. And um, again, it's less formal than D, which it sounds like they've done some great, you know, um, training and, and thinking through. But in our weekly staff meetings, the the biggest thing we talk about is okay, what's coming up this weekend, and and what like you and what may happen. And it's like okay, what do we need to make sure we're prepared for? So we may not get every scenario, but the more that we can cover and really think about what's coming up between weather and races and school groups and and events, so that we do have our bases covered, so that we again can act more than react. Paul, as you listen to their structure and how they manage you know when a problem hits do you hear some of the 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 things that you're talking about i heard the core courage and confidence do you yeah. hear the collective efficacy the staunch realism the 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. And when, as I was listening to these, you know, there's this idea when we talk about individual resilience of, you know, um, uh, looking for patterns so that you can, you know, of what, what, what has you, what are the patterns that make you react to things? And then you can prepare for them by through repetition. And I think you're doing that at this, at, at the scaled up level with your teams and the whole organization by, you know, running drills and being prepared and having plans. Um, even if the incident that you're responding to isn't the thing you specifically planned for, you have so many reps under your belt of responding to things that you're not going to get sort of locked up in a stuck state, right? You're not going to be paralyzed by fear because you're just used to reacting and used to responding. And I think that's a, that is, you know, that, that is, that works at the individual level that's working at the organizational level. Dan, you talked about that last week for personal resilience, routine can help you push forward through crisis and, and having some, absolutely. Yeah. So that that scales up nicely. Um, All right. Let's move to um, Dan and Kelly. Um, Dan, when have you seen a team get better when they were at a low point? How where they hit a low point and grew through it. Well, I, you know, I guess I can um, reflect back when uh, Art Mountain Operations person, we're a very, very small team like Melissa's. And um, at one point in time, we learned that uh, he had uh, contracted a pandemic or um, pancreatic cancer, you know, and the outlook wasn't good. And uh, so really that was, you know, a low point for me personally, because I had worked with him for close to four decades you know, and uh, through that time, we can come very, very close and and uh, work together on so many different projects. And it really impacted our entire team, too. And uh, first thing that we did is we supported him and his family to the greatest possibility that we we could at that time. But more importantly, every day we met as a group, you know, in the morning with the outside crew over in the shop. And not just talking about that, but then growing say, okay, how are we going to get our projects done and how are we going to move forward? And I think the key element, if I reflect back on that, is that um, every everybody wanted wanted the same end. And I think, you know, as far as alignment is concerned and, and you talk a lot about purpose, I think everybody's really on the same page and the values were very consistent. And and I look at one of the things that um, I think we did well was communicate. Every day we got together and every day we talked about it. And it just wasn't about the work that we had done today, but we talked about everybody's personal life and things that they're going through. And really it worked together to form a very, very solid support group. Thanks for sharing that, Dan. Paul, I would classify that as a, as a, a human-centric. Yeah, it was. You know, very the, human. The pinnacle of... of that that model of oh for sure right i mean it, it, you know these challenges come at us um in in so many different ways and i think the fact that we are um you know you know we can't we can't see those things coming necessarily and i think the you know the building our building our strengths in it in anticipation of those events even though those are tragic and difficult things to kind of take on you know, make those a little bit easier. Uh, and I think that, you know, just being, being, you know, being there, being a human centric organization, recognizing what's important, recognizing that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we, you know, we are kind of a family, we're a group where we all know each other for so long. Those are, those, 
those sometimes go beyond the quarterly goals or the, you know, the little, you know, the, the business objectives. Um, you know, you get to make decisions like that, that, that are important for the organization. And, and ultimately when people see mm -hmm. that it be, it makes, you know, it makes the organization special and I think much more, much stronger as a result. Yeah. Um, Kelly, how about you? When, when have you seen, um, you've worked for teams through all your career and, and when have you seen a team get better when they were at a, a low point? Yeah, for me, um, the real one of the real growth periods during my career was when I was in charge of marketing and sales at Mount Snow, and we were owned by the American Skiing Company. And, um, you know, it wasn't everybody knew <laughs> that the American Skiing Company near the end um, had some difficulties. And, you know, we pretty much knew as a resort that we were just trying to get sold. <laughs> so that's kind of... <laughs> That's a real downer when, you know, you know that you're just out on the selling block. Um, but being on the marketing team, one thing that the American Skiing Company did, when, also when you don't have a lot of money, you, you don't put in lifts and things like that. You focus on customer service. It's a great thing to do when, when, you, when you don't have a lot of money. And you can also focus on marketing. You can't sell a company if it's not being marketed well. So they, so the American Skiing Company put all of uh, these resources towards the marketing department and being on that team, I'd get together with all the other marketeers around the country and we did so much strategy work. We worked with pricing specialists. I learned so much. So people would be like, oh, American Skiing Company, you suck. I mean, literally they would yell it at you in your lift lines you're sending all the money to the canyons. We want money at Mount Snow. People were ruthless. But I was sitting there saying, I'm learning more than I've ever learned in the ski industry. So um, it, it, was, it, was, it was a great time. And at the same time, uh, that group we came up with and we launched the All for One Patch Pass, which was one of the original uh, multi-resort company passes. It only lasted a couple of years, but... Um, it was fun and it was an, it was a very exciting time in my career. Throughout the conversation, we invited our mentees to share their questions directly with the mentors. Love to take some of the mentee questions in here. Um, let's start with uh, Kelsey. Let's uh, direct that towards Dee. So in the book, it mentions um, we need to acknowledge the shared experiences of struggling and then normalizing discussions around big challenges. Um, so I'm just curious, Dee, in, in your current role or previous job roles, um, how did you go about normalizing discussions or um, acknowledging struggles to make it not such a big deal? Thanks. That's a good question, Kelsey. Um, one of the things I guess I've always valued is, uh, is developing really strong interpersonal relationships. and but in order to get to that level of disclosure within that relationship, you know, you've got to build trust. And so I think the first part of that as a leader is getting out with your people and exposing yourself to them, showing yourself as vulnerable, showing yourself as, as equivalent to them. Um, and then quite frankly, uh, being bold and opening the conversation and, um, <laughs> I, I last night I did an orientation and I made some folks uncomfortable because I, I was with a group of 40 people and I said, come on, let's really talk about this. And let me tell you about this. 
and let's dig in. I want to hear from you. And it was great. They started to open up and some of the questions were became bullets and arrows. And um, But it, it uh, at the end of it, they were all really um, more satisfied, I think, with the with the orientation. It was more like real and instead of just a uh, a readout of what's changed and what's new, it was, you know, here's what we're all about. And quite frankly, it was a discussion on on our purpose and values and our and our vision. Um, so being, I guess, sensitive to that, that it does take communication and and inviting the opportunity. And well, the other thing that I guess I've been successful um, with in my career, thinking back, is really giving, being generous with your time. It takes time, folks. You got to be patient, and it's you got to find find how to prioritize that so um, so that you can have genuine dialogue that's really fruitful. Let's go to Penny. Um, Penny, you have a good question, and I think it would be a good one for for Dan. So I'm working with um, I have a lovely team with varied experiences, um, and they can they're all contributing to the same goal, which is amazing. But I have definitely the from to the two and those two columns, and I can put names and faces to both of them. And um, my challenge is how do we get them to bridge that gap? Like, it's not that they don't have the same goal and they don't want success. And it's not that they don't communicate, but I feel like some people are speaking literally French while they're speaking in English. So they can kind of get the gist of things, but they don't understand the, the, the basics underneath or the fundamentals underneath. So how, what kind of tool or ways to, or means can you bridge that gap? Is this, and are you, you know, you've got some long-term guys or gals who've been there a long time and then the-, the A bit like Tyler was adding on. Yeah, definitely have some 45 years experience in the industry, super generous, very involved, um, but definitely for the hierarchical old, like old school a bit kind of way of working. And then I've got these really up and coming, amazing people that are just diving right in and bringing things to the next level and really onboarding a whole new generation, but they, that gap is, it's sometimes you feel it's getting bigger as opposed to coming closer and we're trying to aim for the same goal, so. That's a good well, question, Dan. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Penny. Sometimes when you said the old new, I thought you were referring to myself and my son a little bit here, <laughs> you know, as he assumes more of the role at the mountain. But um, I think I think a lot of that really develops through communication. I know I talked a lot of it, about it before, but it seems like, um, you know, in our in our roles, um, you know, we listen to so many things that uh, new folks are coming along. You know, we just hired a new person that was going to do all our events. And she has brought so much to our table that uh, you can't turn your head. You know, you have to you have to listen because so many things have such a solid foundation and make so much sense that, uh, you know, they're bringing us forward into, you know, into this thinking. So I think a lot of it has to do with making sure that people's minds are open, that they're open to change. And I think we're very fortunate in the ski industry is that uh, there is so much change that occurs every day that we have to get good at it. If we don't, we won't survive. And I think that's one of the things that's really, really helped us is being able to listen, being able to communicate and make sure that everybody has a chance when we're sitting around the table, has a chance to speak, and then everybody has a chance to listen too. So it's really that back and forth and making sure that everybody's respectful of everybody's opinion and each other's opinion, whether, you know, whether it's a, you know, first 
time person that's at your resort for the first year or whether it's somebody that's been there for decades because you know there are several ways to uh, approach different you know problems or different issues and it's always good to hear all of them yeah and and paul you know as i was reading the different models there's the the fairness centric organization where all ideas are on the table you know but it but you said at some point it can be how do you move ahead when you've opened it up to be supremely fair that you can't actually narrow it narrow it down and move forward yeah too much consensus right so if there if that's the case then i think um you know finding a new like i think for all of this you know there's two two things one is this idea of you know the the from two shift requires compassion and understanding is as Dan was saying that, you know, everybody comes to the table with a story, a, a perspective, experience and things like that. And I think just, you know, uh, being open to what people are bringing, I think is one, one really important thing. But the other thing is like really practical and tangible. It's like come with a solution, like, and be able to make a case. Like if, if you're, if you are, um, you know, uh, talking about a, a new way of doing things, don't frame it as sort of like old versus new say like here's here's the business problem we need to solve we've tried this 47 different times this way and we've gotten this result cool let's try something else and maybe get a different result and if that doesn't work we'll try something else but it's like trying to create a create a conversation around what is possible and what is doable versus you know like it, you know, don't make it about what they're about and what I'm about and what, you know, what people's point, you know, you know, don't make it about that, make it about how do we solve this business problem together. And I think that really helps. And, you know, how those conversations are structured is really important. So some organizations really do uh, value a consensus driven model where everybody gets their voice in everybody's opinion matters that just takes a long time. And if you have the time, that's great. Not every problem needs that kind of approach. So I think just being being aware that different problems can uh, be solved through different approaches as well is a, is a a sign that you're flexible and open to different strategies and you know essentially that's a sign of of resilience you know because you're bringing in these perspectives. Our next question comes from Charlotte Skinner of Midwest Family Ski Resorts. Similar to kind of Penny's question, but maybe a, a little bit more on the compensation side of things. I feel like when you have, when you bring on new employees, it's really easy to say, you know, this is, we're a dynamic company. It's really important that we are able to change and be able to fill, you know, a multitude of different roles and not saying that, you know, the expectation is that one person would have four full roles, but that they might have bits and pieces of like elements to be able to play to their skill set or help out, you know, we can't hire one person for every single thing that we have. Um, but what I found to be difficult is that when you have people who are established at the company for a long time and are used to having that certain role, and then you say, okay, can you also kind of, can we kind of re reorient your day so that we spend 50% of your time doing this and 10% of your time doing this. And then they feel like all that we've done is we've added to their plate and we haven't compensated them accordingly. But if we were to compensate everybody accordingly, then we might as well just hire that many more people. Do you, do you know what the, I guess that's what I'm trying to get to is how do you kind of 
convince people that you're not, you know, we've said, we're not asking you to work more. We're not asking you to spend more time out of your day. Um, but we are trying to get to a better place where we can have more people that are multifunctional instead of just having one person who only does one thing. Sounds work smarter, not harder. And Melissa, do you have any advice? I think, you know, as, as smaller companies, and right. people have to wear many hats. So yes, the, the other duties as assigned on the, the job description for sure. And I, I find that, um, longevity, like everything, new employees, long-term employees, everything's a double-edged sword and, and the, the historical knowledge and their experience is great, but sometimes that can lead to hesitancy to change. And I think we've had that with, with some of our employees and, and really what we've worked towards is, um, really communicating it out, explaining what we're doing and as importantly, why, and, how ideally the impact to them is to actually make things easier on them, not harder. And, um, you know, sometimes it goes better than others. But one thing that I realize is it's not a one size fits all approach is you've got to really look at the each individual employee and how how they think and 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 how they're motivated and um, work with them individually. Um, you know, when, when I was going through um, some leadership training, one thing that they said is, you know, it's your job as a manager to adapt to each employee, not for your employee to adapt to you. So when I'm facing with something kind of challenging like that, like I want to, you know, really that may like rock their world because they want to change things is I try to look at it from their perspective and how they um, may react to it. And come at it from their point of view as much as we can. And I also find doing it iteratively rather than um, all of it all at once has helped is, you know, um, move the ship slowly in the right direction rather than trying to, to move it really quickly may provide better results. Next, we hear from Julia Evola from Windham Mountain, New York. So, I mean, I think one thing that I've noticed over time as like a societal push to move towards like more balanced lifestyles in general, which I think, you know, is good for an organization overall, but isn't what I think of as like a traditional, you know, organizational model. And especially in our industry where you have like crazy hours and holidays and like often a lot of employee burnout, how do you help avoid that? And, you know, bring those systems into your organization? Yeah, I think that we're definitely at a, a point um, in the ski industry that we haven't faced before in, in, in so many industries. Um, this is not just the ski industry, but it's it may be a little bit harder, a little bit more difficult for us because um, not only are we open weekends and holidays, but we but we operate in remote places where you may not have as many staff members to choose from, all stuff you know. But um, I would look at it as, as, as a challenge, but also this exciting, exciting opportunity to reinvent the wheel. I mean, it, it's just, it's a time when, yeah, you're going to have to work some holidays, but you have to work all of them. Uh, can, can that person who who um, whose faith is important to them, can they have Sunday mornings off? I mean, that's where um, 
you really have to, as Melissa said, you have to understand that person. And is it worth losing that person because you're not able to flex? Um, if they can't come in till 10 in the morning, wouldn't it be better to have them there from 10 to 3 because they're such a rock star at the guest service desk or, or whatever it may be? Uh, so I think it's going to be more of a patchwork approach, uh, and it's going to take uh, a little more work, but technology is there to help us with the scheduling. People can do, quite honestly, their own scheduling and work sharing with, with the people on their team. Um, so I don't have the answers for you, uh, but I do think that if there's one scenario where you should get, you know, some people around the table who are very different from one another to figure this out and get some outside help too. That's those who really approach this and dig in and try some new things. Um, I think they're going to be the resorts and the ski areas that um, set the stage for the rest of us. Our next question comes from JT Thompson, Winter Park Resort, Colorado. We have a town hall after every uh, season and where our executive leadership comes in and basically addresses the whole resort. And um, one of our members stated that, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid is actually one of our greatest strengths at the resort, just because it's a way to get in new fresh blood and get them up to, you know, live the mountain lifestyle. But I've noticed season after season, if we aren't empowering these employees, it just leads to high turnover rates or burnout. So my question is how, or what strategies would you give to emerging leaders to um, shift this narrative to more towards empowering, you know, these employees and developing them when we are getting mixed messaging from our executive leadership team? That's interesting. I've not heard uh, drink the Kool-Aid in that uh, context before, but as you say that, JT, it's a, yeah, it can be used as a weapon as well as as um, as a uh, a pull. Um, uh, both good and bad. And typically, I think we we hear it and we think it's bad. But I think that your executive must have been obviously spinning it in the positive of, hey, let's get everybody on board with our culture, with our values and how cool we are. There's pride through affiliation. There's a rah-rah camaraderie. There's a lot of that in our industry. And if you feel a sense of belonging, right? If I feel like I fit in and you go to, you know, I, we're probably all familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that basic need at the bottom of security and then belonging, um, then that's what I think breeds empowerment. And so, you know, that psychological safety that Paul talked about earlier, you know, I'm empowered to be myself and to express myself, to take a little risk, uh, to make that decision that maybe I don't know that the policy says I can make the decision, but I have confidence because um, I'm supported here, and so I'll go ahead and make the decision, take the risk, and and hope that my hands don't get slapped. So I guess um, it would be interesting for you to ask your superiors what they intended in that in that drink the Kool Aid, please um, call to action, um, and then reframe it. Right, take that mindset of what they're trying to do is is really build the team and, and the camaraderie around those values so that people do, again, feel um, a sense of place within that. That's what's, what I come back to, I guess, for empowerment is really just that 
you have the, like Paul outlines in the book, the, the courage and confidence, level of courage and confidence that allows you to act. Our final question comes from Connor O'Sullivan, Stratton Mountain, Vermont. Looking at the hierarchical system to a more open model, you know, how have leaders really gone about looking to bridge the gap from frontline worker to the ELT? You know, not where I work directly, but in many places I've seen or heard from other employees who feel or have experienced that if they don't communicate, you know, through their old school, as you put it, or direct channels, they can be reprimanded or discounted for what they've said or done um, by their coworkers or their immediate managers. It's like what types of systems or culture changes can be made to make employees feel comfortable to share ideas um, to anyone at any level of organization, because that only in turn will empower people and effectively get communication better. And you know that could provide a lot of benefits. Yeah, great question. And you know, I think some of the answers have are are in the wisdom of of this group already that we've heard some some references to but i'll kind of point to the the one example that or one of the many examples that kind of i deal with on a day-to-day basis and this is with uh, um, a big uh, oil and gas company that was having trouble with safety issues uh, in far-flung locations around the world and um one of the big problems was that uh, safety was a big problem because frontline workers were not speaking up about the challenges that they were, or the, the safety issues that they were seeing because of fear of, of repercussions and things like that. So um, what ended up happening was that there was, um, it went untreated for a long period of time until there was an enormous catastrophic natural disaster involving this oil and gas company that was then you know traced back to the fact that people were afraid to speak up then of course action was taken um sometimes it takes that catastrophic event to sort of develop a plan or a a, you know a you know like a learning and learning program or a, a culture reset uh to to you know in infuse some of these new ideas and new values into a system i would say that um, as leaders, as aspiring leaders, up, up and coming leaders of your own organizations, um, using the smallest opportunity that comes up as that catastrophic event, as an excuse to raise the question uh, is really gonna be important. Like, lever- like be- being able to scan the, the, the environment that you're in, the workplace that you're in, when there is a moment that presents itself to say, ah, this is a learning opportunity for us. It's not catastrophic, thank goodness, but it is something we can use as an excuse to talk about a way to improve our culture, a way to bring people's voices to the table, a way to kind of bring interlevel dialogue to uh, around the table so that we can, you know, look at a problem in a new way. So um, don't wait for the big c- catastrophe look for those learning opportunities and and create collaborative you know you know say hey you know best best way to talk about this after like after action review let's say you know let's bring in a person from here and a person from there and a person from there meanwhile what you're doing is you are building that cross level cross organization dialogue by just involving people in this conversation you have to make it about something so they show up to your meeting bring donuts of course that also helps but um you know, create an excuse to have have a conversation. Now let's dive a little deeper into Paul's book, Reinventing Resilience. In chapter eight, you 
it lists about five different kinds of organizations. You have the the power centric organization, um, you have the loyalty centric organization, the efficacy centric organization, the fairness centric, and then the human centric. And it feels like it starts from the 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 type you don't want to be, the power centric, up to the pinnacle of human centric. Um, you know, are we supposed, is that what we take from that is we're working towards human centric or can we, can we identify with a few of those? Can we combine? Like, what are we supposed yeah, to do? Of course. Yeah. There, first of all, there is no ideal. I think even in these questions, you know, there are, you know, no organization is a monolith where everything is perfectly consistent across any department or any area or any aspect of an organization. It is a dynamic system right any organization any human system is a dynamic system just by definition so these uh the the organizations that we that i the types of organizations in that chapter are um we're, we're kind of um inspired by the work of a guy named frederick Leloux, who wrote a book called reinventing organizations all, all great books start with the word reinventing um but the he talked about you know the 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 origins of organizations were very much about hierarchy, structure, compliance, rules. And as society has evolved, the types of organizations that are needed have also evolved, you know, through a combination of what society wants, but also from what work, the pressure workers have been putting on organizations to evolve and change and adapt as well. So a human centric organization is what is where the inertia is taking us is where the momentum is going you know because we're seeing so many mindset shifts among employers um, or sorry employees what they really want is a little bit more of a human-centric organization where voices are heard uh, ideas are accepted people are seen that's just kind of where the world is going there may be an, a, a subsequent evolution even after that but i th there's no better or worse but I th and we can see our own organizations in different stages of, of this development, maybe straddling a couple too. But I think if you want to use the chapter as a, as a reason to have a meeting or a conversation with other people in your organizations, you can say, hey, check out this thing. You know, organizations are kind of moving in this direction. Are we? Like, let just throw it out there. Are we evolving? Are we, are we moving forward in, in a way that's going to help the business and help our customers move, move forward too. You know, it's, it can be a very innocent question and it could spark a really interesting dialogue and create some really interesting solutions. This wraps up our fourth and final conversation from this year's summit series. Thank you again to our mentors, mentees, facilitators, and our sponsor, Mountain Guard. Do you have someone on your team who could benefit from listening in? Do them a favor and forward this podcast or check out the accompanying article in the May issue of SAM magazine. Like, subscribe, and stay in touch at www.saminfo.com. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The PodSAM advisor is Alex Kaufman, the Winter Mix podcast guy. Thank you for tuning in to PodSAM. <laughs>